Okay, looks like we got everybody shepherded down to Children's Church that wants to go. Thank you, Dirk, for reading the scripture, and thank you, Peyton, for the lovely special. Let's take a moment now and pray. Father, would you give us grace and mercy for uh, this passage this morning? Help us as we study these words of Hannah. Her name means grace, and you graced her. She worshipped you. She showed us a model of sacrificial motherhood. Would you help us to make appropriate application, and at the end of it all, would you help us to look to you uh, who give us shape for all of our parenting needs. Uh, You will inspire these moms, but ultimately, Lord, you're the one that will protect our children. Ultimately, you're the one that will bring them to glory should they arrive arrive safely there. Lord, bless this hour and bless our study of your word. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every mother has her particular strengths. As I was reflecting this week on my own mom, my mom's name is Karen, which is a word that actually appears in this text. My mom probably doesn't know this, but the word horn in Hebrew is the word Karen, and it means strength. I don't know that that's the word that my grandparents were going for when that's what they named her, but that's what they named her. Well, one of her great strengths was her willingness to help me whenever I found myself in a pinch. There seemed to be no school project dropped upon her at the very last second that she wouldn't help me with. There were countless popsicle stick creations. There were many different Spirit Week outfits. She convinced a co-worker to slice a golf ball in half so that I could make a, a replica of a, it, was, it became the nucleus for a cell that I was trying to draw, make a, make a uh, diagram of. But one of, the, one of the scenes that I think best illustrates my mom's willingness to just throw herself into one of my needs is illustrated by something I'm going to show you. Carrie, are you guys ready for this? It is a treasure. Okay. This right here is a Princess Leia Pez dispenser. <laughs> I have a friend. His name was Joe. And whenever one of us got married, as a wedding present, he would give us a Princess Leia Pez dispenser. And he would do it with great fanfare. And it became kind of a a thing, a dopey thing that he did among us boys. Well, there were probably a half a dozen of us friends, and Joe ended up being the last one of us to get married. And it was my job. We'd all received, this was mine, we'd all received Pez dispensers, Princess Leia Pez dispensers from Joe. And it was my job to bring a Princess Leia Pez dispenser to the wedding. Well, I ordered one, and I had one ready to go, but when I went to pack the bag, somehow it got left out, and I showed up in the Atlanta area for this wedding with no Princess Leia Pez dispenser. My friends were angry with me to a degree that is absurd. They were like, Greg, you had one job to do. (laughs) I was bemoaning my station to my mother without any discussion, without any seeming thought to it, 
she got on eBay and found a gift shop somewhere in the backwoods of Tennessee, three hours one way, hopped in her car that morning, drove to Tennessee, and bought me a mint condition, unwrapped Princess Leia Pez dispenser that I could then present to my friend that night. <laughs> and for my mom, that's only one example of many of her willingness just to drop everything on a moment's notice to meet those needs of her children. Well, I think all moms know that mothering is at its core a sacrifice. When that baby is born and you bring that child home, you realize that the baby's going to get hungry late at night or early in the morning. And something is going to have to give to keep that child fed, and it's probably your sleep, moms. The baby will need to be clothed, and that means our own desires for the things that we want have to go by the wayside so the child can be clothed and fed. A mother is always giving of herself and giving of her things and giving of her time and giving of her energy for the good of her children. At the core of it, a mother's job is sacrifice. But there's something special about the sacrifice that we're going to study today. Hannah, no doubt, gave all of those sacrifices that mothers time immemorial have given. Hannah discovered something. She discovered something very early in her mothering that was so profound, God chose to memorialize it in his scripture. And God chose to use her example as something that he would do with his own son many years later. What was it that Hannah figured out about mothering and sacrificing? It's this. Hannah realized that she wasn't the sacrifice. Hannah realized that her child was the sacrifice. And she was giving her child to God as an act of worship. She was giving her child to God as an act of sacrifice. That, and God was so pleased with that because it was a foretaste of what God would do. And God was so pleased with that, he gave Hannah that which was most precious to him. She gave to God that which was most precious to her, and God in turn gave her what was most precious to him, and that was his word. Hannah wrote some of the Bible for us, and that was a gift from God to her and to us. So let's see what Hannah's situation was. Let's see what God gave her, and then at the end, we'll draw some conclusions from this story. 
Dirk read for us First uh, Samuel chapter 2, which is a prayer. And you may have noticed that that's a prayer of response. But I would venture to say that many of us here don't know very well what the story of Hannah was. The story of Hannah begins in 1 Samuel 1, and we will spend some time there. So if you want to flip back to 1 Samuel 1, we can begin to kind of pick up the story of this young woman. We read that she was alive in the time of the judges. There was no king in Israel. This was after they'd come into the promised land, before the kings began to rule. And in fact, this is at the very end of the kingship, of the judges period. Now, if you want to look up what that time was like, you can look up Judges 21-25. And we're told that this was the time that the judges were ruling, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. There are terrible scenes of uh, incredible sin and sinfulness and nationwide debauchery, because every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. And Hannah lived in a time when that was the prevailing religious attitude of the people in that day. There was no authority. There was no, everyone followed their heart. That's what Hannah lived. And she was serving, she was living when the second to last judge was ruling, and that was Eli, and you can read about him in 1 Samuel 4.18. Now, Hannah was a woman in great turmoil. Hannah was a second wife, or maybe she was the first wife, and Peninnah was the first. Before we get too far, we let that train get too far down the tracks, and we wonder why it was that Elkanah, a seemingly pious man, would have two wives. Well, let's cut Elkanah some slack. We're not told what the conditions were of his second marriage. In this culture, it's very possible that there could have been a death in the family. The fate of a widow was not a good thing. In fact, all the way up until the time of Jesus, the fate of a widow was uh, really a, a, an event that would be a very negative thing. And we, we, If you were reading along in one of our Bible reading plans this week, you learned that widows were responsible for their own husband's debts. Women could be attacked by creditors and very often... Widows ended up in prostitution to pay off debts. It was not a good place for widows to be. And even though it was not a great thing either for a man to have two wives, it was better than the alternative. And it's very possible that Elkanah, as an act of grace and mercy to one of these two women, brought her under his roof as an act of worship. It's not for sure. We don't know. Perhaps Elkanah had two wives because of his lust. And he returned to the Lord. And instead of sending one away off to that lifestyle, said, well, we'll deal with it, and we're going to turn to the Lord. There. We need to take the text at face value. Elkanah was a pious and righteous man, and Hannah was a pious and righteous woman. And God does not call this second marriage into question in this text. It's just stated that it's there. Well, one of these wives was godly, and one was not. Peninnah was not a godly woman. It also happened that Peninnah had a lot of kids. She, it says, had many children, many sons and daughters. Peninnah was um, a mother many times over. 
And Hannah, for all of her grace, and as I said before, her name means grace, Hannah was unable to conceive. And it's clear that Elkanah loved her dearly. He would cherish her. He wanted her to have a child. Now, in, 20, in the 21st century, we know that there could be a whole host of reasons that a woman is unable to conceive. It could very well be that, it, yeah, we, it, that it's a very small thing, a very correctable thing. Even today, when ladies have a hard time conceiving, that can be a bit of a mystery to doctors, even in our modern medical status. In Hannah's day, there were two presumptions when a woman could not conceive. And the first one was that it was her fault. It was a fault of the woman's that she could not conceive. And the second assumption was that it was some sin of hers that was creating this situation of her barrenness. And so it was likely with great shame perceived guilt that Hannah could not have a child and Peninnah would taunt her. Peninnah would abuse her, make fun of her. And Elkanah, though he was pious, he seems very willing to encourage her. They, they had a family highlight of the year. Every year the family high point was they would go to Shiloh for a festival. And there Elkanah would offer uh, gifts to the Lord. It was a huge highlight. Children would see friends that they hadn't seen all year long. Old friends would reunite over collective worship together. What you get to do every week with your friends and worshiping the Lord was not something that these people got to do week in and week out. It was a once a year type of thing. The festival was accompanied not only with sacrifices, but with lots of eating and drinking and merriment. It was a party, a sanctified party, as much as it was a religious feast and festival. And it also happened that this high point of the year was Hannah's least favorite time of the year. All the mothers with their tummies, with unborn children, all the little children playing around, all the mothers nursing, all the family activity taking place all over, only sent Hannah further into her despair. And then there was Peninnah's proud look down her nose. There was Peninnah's barbed accusations that Hannah was doing something wrong. The festival became a time of great grief and sorrow for Hannah. And she just would get so depressed. And Elkanah tries to help her. He, he gives her double the food that he gave everybody else, which may have been a little misguided since she was so depressed that she couldn't eat anyway. He's like, hey, I know you can't eat. Have double. And then he says to her, Hannah, why are you so sad? Aren't I worth more to you than ten sons? And Hannah, unsurprisingly, doesn't take that to be the comfort that it was intended to be. Well, the family's having their feast. They're 
together, having fun, making merry. And so Hannah decides it would be a good opportunity to slip away and have a little time alone with the Lord. This is what she does, and that brings us to our next point, Hannah's first prayer. We read here that it was a prayer, look at verse 10 of chapter 1, born of bitter anguish. It says in our translation that she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. You could translate this literally, and she, bitter of soul, prayed to the Lord, and weeping she wept. The author is communicating that she was constantly crying, and in the midst of those constant tears would raise the volumes to a weep and moan. And then she would lower her tears only to a whimper for a prolonged time and then raise them again. It was a constant anguish. She calls the Lord's full attention to her problem. She asks the Lord three times over to observe something. She says, Lord, look at my situation. And Lord, remember me. Remember me. Now, in Hebrew, the ideas of remember and forget are a little different than we would use today. This morning, I could not remember where I put my car keys. I forgot that I had left them in my truck. Once I went out to my truck and saw them, the mystery was solved. That's not the way that a Hebrew would think of remember and forget. The way they would say remember is, imagine a husband and wife sitting for their 25th wedding anniversary at a nice meal. And he says to her, what was going through your mind when I asked you on our first date? And she remembers what that was like. Had she forgotten? Well, no. She's deliberately calling back to mind what was already in there. Forget has sort of the same force. Let's say a negative event happens to your friend, something they couldn't help, something, and they're, they're stressing over it. What do you say to the person who's stressing over it? You say, ah, forget about it. Well, can they really forget about it? No, what, what you mean is put it out of your mind. Don't deliberately think any more about it. That's the idea. Hannah's calling God to deliberately rehearse in his mind her situation. And do not deliberately put it out of your mind. Keep it in front of you. Look and give me constant attention is what she is calling the Lord to do. And then she raises the meaning of the prayer by putting it in the form of a vow. She says, if you remember, if you don't forget, if you look and observe and you give me a son, I will wholly devote that child to God and a razor will never touch his head. Now, what is this, what's the significance of that? Well, in the Hebrew culture, you can look this up in Numbers chapter 6, verse 5, or Judges chapter 13, verse 5. When a person was especially given over to the Lord, they would refuse to cut their head. It became 
a symbol, an outward symbol for everybody else that this person was uniquely given over to the Lord. We have little symbols like this in our culture. Many of you are wearing wedding bands. The wedding band is an outward symbol of a reality. You're married, and that ring is a symbol to the rest of the world that you're given to your spouse. And so that long hair, never to be cut, was a symbol to all those around that this person was to be uniquely God's. And so Hannah is saying, I'm giving him to you, not in some secret, hidden in the heart kind of way, not in some foxhole prayer kind of way. I'm giving him holy, I will give him holy over to you in a way that's distinguishable to everybody around me. And everybody will know that he is uniquely yours. That's her prayer. And God fulfills that prayer. That brings us to our next slide. <coughs> God fulfills the prayer. And it begins, it begins with an unlikely confirmation. She's there next to the temple and she's praying. The writer, the irony of this is not lost on our author. A very large man who had never denied himself anything. A man who was overweight, we're told in 1 Samuel 4.18, this is, he was overly indulgent, accuses her of overindulgence. He says, you must be drunk. She was praying, her lips were moving. He must have never seen a woman pray with such zeal or anger, and he just assumed that she was drunk. The, this is a classic kettle pot calling the kettle black moment. But Hannah, being the spiritual woman that she is, doesn't, doesn't say, well, buddy, three fingers are pointing right back at you. You know, she, she doesn't say that. She says, no, I'm praying out of anguish of heart. And Eli rebuked at this sight says maybe he maybe he knew that he was saying something prophetic maybe he didn't but he says may the lord grant you whatever you're praying for and you can go now in peace and something happened in that moment hannah heard it as though it was from the lord she heard in this man's words, the voice of God. And she perked up. She went back to the party. She had a good time. She ate. Because she knew God had just spoken to her that she would have a son. And with confidence, she went home, and the Lord remembers Hannah, and she conceives, and she delivers a child. And Hannah herself remembers She's not going to let this vow fall empty. She <coughs> begins to remember what she had promised the Lord. It says that she goes through uh, a weaning process. Uh, and so, you know, in the ancient world, um, the weaning process could take usually at least three years, but in some cultures it would go five or six years. It was essentially until the child could feed themselves completely adult food all the time. And 
it wasn't just a, the child ceased to nurse situation. It was more than that. And so for, you know, two to four years, five years perhaps even, Hannah doesn't go to the festival. She keeps this boy Samuel nearby. She's thinking about this moment that she's going to offer this child back to the Lord and fulfill her vow. And finally the day comes and she goes with a lavish sacrifice. She brings the boy as a sacrifice. It says that she brought the boy. And in Genesis chapter 4-3, in fact, you might want to look here where it says that she brought the boy. That can be taken not as just a, yes, she did bring the boy. And that's a common Hebrew word, but it's an uncommon use of that word. And you can go to Genesis chapter 4-3 to see how that word is used in an identical form. And it says that Cain and Abel brought sacrifices to the Lord. This is a religious word. Hannah is bringing this boy, Samuel, as a sacrifice. She also brings a three-year-old bull. She brings a lavish gift for Eli. She brought 20-plus pounds of fine flour for Eli to make cakes with. She brought a whole skin of wine. The wine those days was always watered down, usually five, six parts of water to one part of wine. And so taking a whole skin of undiluted wine would provide Eli with many, many drinks of his favorite beverage. There's irony in her bringing wine to the man who accused her of drinking too much of it. She brings him a great sacrifice, but her son is the great sacrifice. Now, during this time that Hannah is weaning the boy, during this time that Hannah is preparing to offer her child as a sacrifice to the Lord, Hannah is thinking. And Hannah is praying. And Hannah is writing down a poem that she intends to pray as she's offering her child to the Lord. It's a beautiful poem. It has literary techniques that are profound. It's got a meter and a rhythm to it that commentators agree. has ancient echoes to it. In fact, it's so good that some commentators say, well, it's too good for Hannah to have written herself. And that's an utterly preposterous thing to say. Because what we're going to find is it wasn't just Hannah who was talking. Hannah would be perfectly capable of writing a poem. But this was a special poem, and God apparently had his hand in it. This poem... Samuel would get a copy of. And as he lived his life, he realized something about this poem. Now, ladies, how many of you, perhaps you've read the prayer of Hannah before. And like me, you've struggled to say, okay, I see how this poem fits everything she just went through. 
it's kind of hard to see the connection. That would be true. Hannah brought a poem that spoke to her life in Samuel's, not as a description of what had already happened, but as a description of what would happen. God allowed her to look down the tunnel of time, and she began to make prophecies about this child. And this man who would be the kingmaker, Samuel, started to see how this poem related to his life. And he started to see how this was foretelling much of what he would do. And so he put it at the beginning of his book because he says this prayer that my mom prayed, this poem that my mom wrote at the beginning of my ministry, foretold what my life would be about. Hannah was sacrificing the thing to her that was of greatest worth. And God, who exalts above all things his name and his word, gave Hannah that which mattered most to him and gave her his words. This poem that she writes, it's filled with personal praise. It's characterized by personal praise. Look at the first two words. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies. Look right here. It says, my heart, my strength, my mouth. She's saying that every part of me is praising the Lord. She's characterizing the rest of this poem as an act of worshipful praise. The, mo the chief element of this poem, however, the chief element of this prayer is that it relishes God. Ladies, her prayer is thoroughly theological. Her prayer is born of many hours of meditation on the person and character and work of God. If somebody told Hannah that a peasant woman should not be doing theology, she would laugh at him. As well she should. Hannah was a woman who dwelled on the deep things of God, and it comes out in this prayer. Verses 2 through 10 are about God. Verse 2, for example, she says, There is none. Look at the next line. There is none. The third line. There is, and it's in Hebrew, in English, it doesn't come over great, but it's another, there is none. She's sort of triply exalting the exclusive right of the Lord to rule. Her prayer offers 19 different affirmations of God. 19 different ones. All affirmations of God. She says, the Lord kills, the Lord brings to life. He brings shield, he raises up, the Lord makes poor, the, more, the Lord makes rich. The Lord brings low. The Lord exalts. 
She's carefully observed during this time of her weaning process all of the things that the Lord has done, and she characterizes them with 19 different statements that find home in her metered poem. It's beautiful. The third thing about this prayer is that it it fosters humility. In verse 3, she directly condemns arrogance. She says, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Samuel would interact with King Saul, King David. Especially with Saul, he would condemn him for his arrogance. As first in Samuel, these books move forward. There's a constant lifting up of God of the humble and the humbling of the mighty and the proud. When David was low in his own eyes, God exalted him. And when David grew proud and arrogant in his own heart, he fell with a terminal velocity that shattered lives. This prayer notes how God turns things around. Nine different times she speaks of turnaround. She says, The Lord kills and brings to life. The one who was barren now has seven. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. She's advocating a humility that waits on the Lord and allows him to meet needs, and when God exalts, who can keep him from exalting? But once exalted, keep your heart and attitude in check, for the Lord can bring you down just as fast and just as thoroughly as he brought you up. Hannah has observed not only God, but she's observed people, and she's tying people into what God is doing. Then last, let's look at this. God allows Hannah to speak to future things. Look at verse 6. Hannah first predicts a resurrection. She says, He brings down to the grave And he raises up. He raises people up out of the grave. Well, who will do that? Look down at verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give his strength to his king. Now remember, there's no king yet in the land. Eli is a judge. Samuel will take his place as a judge. There is no king yet. But Hannah has been given foresight into the future. And she sees that there will one day be a king who rules. There will be a God who raises from the dead. And she says then, he will exalt the power of his Messiah. That word anointed is the Hebrew word Mashiach. We get the word Messiah from it. And here, she sees that there's a king who's coming. And in some connection to that king will be 
an anointed one that God will exalt. He will not let that king see decay, but will raise him up from Sheol and will set him in the heavenly places and he will reign. Hannah is offering her son as this great sacrifice. And God allows this woman through her meditation and through her writing to speak predictively of his son and his Messiah, his anointed and his king. And here it's memorialized for everybody to see. Now there's three lessons I'd like us to take away from this prayer this morning. Number one, Hannah's prayer points to a mother's ultimate mission. And a mother's ultimate mission is sacrifice. But as we've said before, this yes, it involves a sacrifice of herself. Yes, it involves a sacrifice of her energy, time, and so forth. But ultimately, a mother's goal, a mother's mission, is to raise children up to hand them over to the Lord for his service and use. A mother's ultimate mission is to prepare that child for use in God's kingdom. There's a few non-children's church children in here. We have our little rhyme cards. And our first one is, Charlotte knows them very well, our first one is A is for arrow in a warrior's hand. God sends his children flying How's the rest go? All across the land. Now, I made that one for kids, but mainly for parents. As a reminder, parents in general, moms in particular, our ultimate purpose is to raise that child for God's use and to let that child off the string so that it can fly, he or she can fly wherever God wants to take it, him or her. And that will hurt our hearts to see them pick up and go. But the child was never ours to begin with. They're God's and we've been, it's our mission to prepare them for the use in God's kingdom. Number two, Hannah's prayer points us to the best way to fulfill that mission. And the best way to fulfill that mission is prayer. First Samuel 1 and 2 are essentially strings of prayers. There's a woman praying prior to conceiving and giving birth. And here's a woman praying after she's given birth. And it's clear that she's taken great energy and time so that she will pray specific things. She's carefully written out her words so that in a measured way she can ask God for something very specific. She wants to take 
great pains to know that she's praying what God would want her to pray, and she realizes that if she's going to give this child over to God for the use in God's kingdom, both she and the child will need grace beyond her ability to impart it. And so she prays and asks God for the strength necessary to make this great sacrifice. And then last, Hannah's prayer points us to the one person who can make a difference in our children's souls. And that is, of course, the Lord. Hannah is constantly pointing us back to the Lord. Look to the Lord. Look to the Lord. Look to the Lord who does this. Look to the Lord who does that. Look to the Lord who raises up. Look to the Lord who puts down. Look to the Lord who's mighty. Look to the Lord who saves. And Hannah was very comfortable with the fact that God needed to do something in her child's heart. When we come to the New Testament, we see a contrast. There's a, there's a young man who's a train wreck. He's living naked with other man, with another man, in a cemetery. He cuts himself with stones at night, and he beats people up as they pass by. And we meet another young man right after that. And he was born into a great family who took him to synagogue, who helped him study the word, and he learned the word from his youth. God had blessed that young man, and he was now rich, and people looked to him for leadership. Here you've got one man who's had no advantages and is a, is a, um, a menace to society, and you've got another man, a young man that everybody looks to as the model that everybody else should follow. To one man, God showed mercy. And it was the man who was the train wreck. We have to get really, parents, we have to get really cozy with the fact That even though it honors God and glorifies God to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that doesn't save our children. It's God who has to smile into the soul of a child and make them born again. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And part of Becoming an effective parent is that realization that we depend solely on God to do the work in the heart of the child. And so we go to the Lord in prayer. And we beg him to be active in that child's heart. And we beg God for the strength to one day offer that child over to the Lord as an act of worship. We will need all of God's grace to do this, as this is the job, yes, of parents in general, but of mothers in particular. Let's pray.
Father, would you give us grace to look to you to make the ultimate difference in our children's hearts? Would we beg you from the bottom of our hearts in constant, ceaseless prayer for our children? And would we model what you first modeled by sending your son to the cross for sinful man. Lord, may we offer our children as an act of worship to you for your use in your great kingdom. May we do that empowered by prayer and emboldened by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, at this time, Nathan's going to come and uh, lead us in a song. It appears that there's a few extra lotions and chapsticks uh, left up here. If you would like to grab one for another mom in your life or grandma after the service is over, please feel free to come up and grab those. Um, and uh, those will be your gift to take home. I'll be at the back door. I'd love to say hi to you on your way out. And at this time, Nathan's going to come in.